We are through week 11 in the NFL season, and as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday, we here at Inside the Pile on the podcast are happy to put on a very special episode of our podcast with a little little holiday cheer as we start to get in towards the holiday season. So I would like to welcome in my co-host Mark Schofield, joining me, Chuck Zada, in studio today. And Mark, are you uh, you getting ready for Turkey Day? I am getting ready. Um, I hope you're getting ready as well. Yeah, you know, just going over final preparations here at Casa de Schofield. Well, going over final prep at Casa de Schofield before I came in here to the studio and joined you. But should be a good holiday. You're going to have some football games to watch as well, which is always nice. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm going to be traveling down to North Carolina, actually, to see my oh. parents. They're in the... Yeah. Uh, in the Raleigh Durham area right now, so I'm actually I've always found it's better to travel on Thanksgiving morning, just because no true. one, no one, no one's ever on the road or at the airport then. So I have a 6 a.m. flight out. I get in around 8 a.m. into Durham. Uh, so I'll be doing that. What, what do you have planned? Are you uh, sticking around or what's, what's your game local. plan? I am local. I'm in the D.C. area. My, I'm very lucky that my parents uh, live just 20 minutes away or so. My in-laws, my wife's parents, are like 30 minutes away, so we can get the whole family together. Um, Speaking of you know flying on Thanksgiving morning, that's that's one of our many Thanksgiving Day tips that we're going to be sharing with the the loyal listeners later. So excited way to kick that off. Yeah, we do have a full Thanksgiving Day tip uh, segment that we are going to be doing today. So make sure you stick around for that. Um, unfortunately, one thing we don't have today still movement on no movement on the Taylor Swift or Adele front. Unfortunately, we keep um, trying. No, this is we're trying. I mean, this is. I've been rejected more by Taylor Swift now than by every other girl in my life combined, and wow. so it's it's been a challenge, but we're going to keep pushing. We've got about eight weeks left until uh, the Super Bowl now, and hopefully we get a little movement there. Hopefully, but if not, I mean, I think what's really happened is both Taylor Swift and Adele know that if neither of them retweets or favorites something of ours, that we have to sing. And I think that's really what they're pushing for. Yeah, they're, they're going for the duet, I think. Yeah. And, and the way things are going right now, they may get it. But let us now turn to football. That's why we are all here. And it was a big weekend this weekend. A lot of, uh, unlike uh, Week 10, where we didn't really see that many high-quality uh, you know, high games between teams with winning records, we had a couple big games here. And I want to start first with an NFC North matchup that we talked about. Uh, quick preview in the last uh, show that we did. And that's the matchup between Green Bay and Minnesota. And we had said this was going to potentially be a pivotal game in the division. But what did you see? saw a lot of things that stood out. I mean, watching that game on Sunday and then re-watching it this morning before we hopped in here. Um, the Green Bay offense um, looked better than they have in weeks past. Um, I liked what they did in the run game, specifically when they used power blocking schemes. Um, they vacillate between some zone plays and some power blocking plays but in breaking that game down today it seemed like whenever they used power they were able to generate some push up front move that defensive line a bit and create some lanes for either Eddie Lacy or Starks out of the backfield in the passing game you know there were again times when um, when Rodgers was under pressure uh, had to make you know had to buy time with his feet on a number of examples but in weeks past where they weren't able to make plays down the field. He was able to make some plays in the passing game. Um, so I liked what I saw from that side of the ball. Can we talk a little bit more? You mentioned that the Packers had used more of a power running game in uh, in this matchup here. And I know that term gets thrown around quite a bit by announcers. What exactly, what types of techniques and strategy are they utilizing there in what would be considered a power game? Well, I mean, the, the two kind of 
basic run scheme designs are what's power block and where you're responsible for a man. If you're a blocker or an offensive lineman, a tight end, it's, you know, you've got to block the defensive tackle. You've got to block the defensive end. You've got to scrape up to the second level and take a linebacker. It's kind of called the big on big, hat on hat. Yep. You'll hear things like that. Zone blocking, it's more of a flow and a unis in a line moving in unison and you're responsible for an area. So when you see the entire offensive line and perhaps a tight end kind of all step to their left at the snap, that's a zone blocking scheme. Now and what 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 we saw from Green Bay in this game, it was that a conscious decision based on the matchups they were seeing? I don't know if it was so much a conscious decision. It was just that they had some success with it early, so they kind of returned to those schemes throughout the game. Uh, it's one of those things that you've got the the game plan. You call some plays. You might have some subscripted. I don't know off the top of my head if Mike McCarthy scripts plays or not. Probably does. Um, you see what works, and you come back to it. What about on the uh, other side of the ball here? We've talked for uh, much of this season about how the the Vikings' offense may still be a year or two away from being where it needs to be in terms of having the, the appropriate weapons around Teddy Bridgewater and being able to consistently uh, grind out the yards they need. What did you see from Bridgewater and the Vikings offense? Well, you saw some good things and you saw some bad things. I mean, my first takeaway in watching the matchup between the Vikings offense and the Packers defense was the defensive front and the defensive line of Green Bay. They were getting penetration and pressure off the snap. They were winning the battle at the line of scrimmage. B.J. Raji had a tremendous game. Um, I really came away impressed with what he was able to do in the interior. I, I think for the skill position players for the Vikings, um, Rudolph had a nice game. There was a touchdown pass to him on, on the post route that Bridgewater dropped in perfectly. Stephon Diggs, I continue to be impressed with what he's doing on the outside. Adrian Peterson is Adrian Peterson. He's going to get to yards on the ground. Bridgewater made some good throws, but there were times when he was under pressure and missed outlet throws, missed some checkdowns, and you know they left some yards on the field, I think. A good, not great performance from him, but again, a young team that I think you know they're getting better each week. Uh, I think they are missing one last piece, uh, perhaps a, you know another receiver on the outside, maybe somebody that can, you know, a little bigger body that can work the sidelines, get yep. you know deep vertically, uh, stretch the defense a bit, and you know, kind of create some space for Diggs and Rudolph underneath. And I think they add that. You know, they drafted Cordell Patterson. That didn't quite work out. They added Mike Wallace. That hasn't quite panned out. Um, you know, maybe there's somebody in this draft class that they could add or a free agent to get that final piece for their offense. Yeah, and, and these two teams, they do meet again uh, the last week of the season at Lambeau Field. Right. They've got pretty similar schedules going in there. Both of them play the Cardinals. Uh, the uh, Vikings as well also play the Seahawks. I know that the Packers face a resurgent uh, Cowboys team. So could be in a position where you have that last game potentially determining some playoff seating here, and that's going to be something that I have circled on my calendar for okay. that last week. Um, let's turn now to another big matchup here, and that was uh, the Arizona Cardinals facing off with the Cincinnati Bengals. And Bengals coming off arguably their worst game of the year, that Monday nighter against the Texans where they picked up their first loss and unfortunately lost a close one to the Cardinals here, but but I think showed something in the process. I think so. I mean, this was a fun game to watch, both watching it live, like, you know, we watched it Sunday night and then, you know, breaking it down again. I mean, just two great offensive minds and Hugh Jackson and Bruce Arians going at it. I mean, I was kind of thinking this morning, obviously Hugh Jackson is going to be up for consideration for some of the open head coaching jobs. And I know the talent cupboard is kind of bare in San Francisco, but to see 
you know, him go to San Francisco potentially and match up with Bruce Arians twice a year would be a joy to watch, I think. As far as the game itself, I mean, Cincinnati, they got on top early. They did some nice things in the passing game. Um, I like, again, Hugh Jackson with what he does and how he schemes plays to get players open. I like how they're using the tight end Tyler Efert, especially in the red zone. Yep. Um, their defense made some plays early. They were playing a lot of cover two against uh, Arizona. Yep. Um, Carson Palmer threw two interceptions early against that cover two scheme. One was a vertical route he tried to squeeze into Larry Fitzgerald, and I think it was Leon Hall who played that route well. The second one was kind of funny. It was a Mills concept against cover two where you have that post and that dig and throwing that post route, try to have that post route split the two high safeties. It's a nice read, and that's what Palmer threw, but – both Nelson, the rookie, and Fitzgerald ran the dig route. They almost ran into each other crossing the <laughs> field. Yep. Uh, so nobody, nobody was home. Um, but then both teams, you know, showed some resiliency at the end. I mean, Cincinnati kind of clawed back into that. You know, they get the field goal late that you think, oh, you know, maybe we're going to get overtime here. But then Arizona comes right back with a, you know, field goal drive of their own to win it. Yeah, the other thing that I noticed on the on the defensive side of the ball for the Cardinals is they were creating some pretty good pressure opportunities with their front seven there. I saw on a number of occasions they were blitzing Kevin Minter, who was really just running over running backs the entire day, it seemed like, and getting into the backfield there and forcing Andy Dalton to get the ball out of his hand quickly. Dalton ended up only 22 for 39 on the day. No picks, but I think that that, that the amount of pressure that the Arizona defense was able to get certainly helped them to disrupt the timing of the Cincinnati offense. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, it kind of also speaks to Hugh Jackson's, you know, ability to call plays at the right moment. I mean, he saw, you know, what Arizona was doing, how they were getting pressure. He called a couple of screens in that game at the right moment that resulted in big plays. It's just, you know, Dave Archibald, our, our good friend over at Inside the Pylon, wrote a great piece on, you know, what Hugh Jackson's doing as an offensive mind. And we're going to have him on later. But, you know, it, it's just another example of what he's able to do as a play caller and an offensive, you know, offensive mind there for Cincinnati so like what they're doing yeah it's a loss for Cincinnati but I still think that you know they they look like a really solid team that is going to be a tough out for anybody in the playoffs I tend to agree I tend to agree there and we are now actually going to go to uh, our writer Dave Archibald who has been putting out a series really on how teams invest both in the draft as well as how much salary cap space they are giving to certain positions and his most recent one that he has featured is on tight end investment. And so I now do welcome in Dave Archibald. He is a writer for Inside the Pylon. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dave Archie. And Dave, appreciate you taking the time today. Hey, Chuck. Hey, Mark. Great to be on. Absolutely. Now, we've had you on before to talk about this series on positional investment. What did you see in your most recent look at tight ends? Well, there's a big spread in how teams invest in tight ends. You've got uh, the Lions who made Eric Ebron the 10th pick uh, a couple of years ago. And if you go back to 2009, they made Brandon Pettigrew the 20th pick uh, in the draft. And then you have the Giants who haven't drafted a tight end since 2009 and don't have a tight end who makes even a million dollars on their roster. Um, and on the other end of the spending spectrum, you've got the Patriots and Jaguars who both spend more than $13 million on tight ends. So it's a position where you know different teams use it differently and different teams are trying to get by with different strategies. 
Did you see any correlation in your research about any particular strategy that seemed to be more effective than the others? Well, I think that's one of the things that's interesting as I've gone through this investment series. Um, investing in a position is a response to a problem, but it doesn't always solve it. And we saw that really clearly with the tight ends. If you look at the 10 tight ends who make the most money, uh, five of them have changed teams in the last year. You've got Jimmy Graham being traded from the uh, Saints to the Seahawks. You've got Vernon Davis being traded from the 49ers to the Broncos. And then you've got some big free agent signings in Julius Thomas, Charles Clay, and Jordan Cameron. And in my opinion, all five of those players aren't really living up to expectations and their salaries. So, you know, you see teams, they say, oh, I've got, I'm not getting enough production at a tight end. I'm going to go spend a bunch of money on it or a high draft pick. It doesn't always play out like that. Do you think that a lot of teams, part of the reason that we've seen this increased spending is a lot of teams probably looked at the success that the New England Patriots had with Rob Gronkowski and previously before he turned into uh, a monster Aaron Hernandez. And do you think a lot of teams looked at the success that the New England offense had there and said, look, this is an area where we should be investing? Is that a reason why we've seen more investment in recent years here? Uh, It's certainly possible. I mean, we see uh, Clay and Cameron, those are two division rivals of the Patriots uh, in the Bills and the Dolphins who are spending big money there. I I think maybe there's a perception that you can elevate your quarterbacks, especially if you have a young quarterback, by giving them that security blanket in the middle of the field. Um, But, you know, (laughs) it works great if you've got Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. It doesn't necessarily work great depending on who else you have. What have we seen from the the young tight ends, the ones that have been drafted in the last two or three years? How much success have teams had at drafting tight ends? Off the top of my head, Tyler Eifert in Cincinnati is probably the only one who's really at an elite level right now, but are there any other names that have been able to really uh, create uh, you know a place for themselves in the NFL at a high level? Yeah, I mean, the the jury's still out on some of these guys. I mean, Zach Ertz has been okay in Philly. Um, Ebron is starting to come on a little bit in Detroit. But, I mean, some of these guys, it's it's too soon to tell. Uh, I think the Cowboys are probably disappointed in Gavin Escobar. And then the guys who are drafted this year, Max Williams, Clive Walford, you know, we're still trying to feel that out. I, I think, you know, like any position... You've got guys who are uh, who are coming on, and guys who are you know not living up to their draft status. I actually wrote about Austin Safarian Jenkins uh, a couple weeks ago. He had a great week one this year. It looks like he might be breaking out, and then he gets hurt in week two, and we haven't seen him since. And Jason Morrow, who was a second round pick last year, he's been hurt. Uh, he's been on injured reserve all year, so it's uh. You know, sometimes injuries play in, too. Dave, you've now kind of rolled through a number of positions here on the offensive side of the football. Now that you've, you know, gone through these positions, are there any sort of macro, global types of lessons that you've taken away from how teams in the NFL construct in their offenses? You know, there really aren't, Mark. I, I think that's one of the things that's interesting. I mean, the, the Patriots and the Cardinals are probably the two best offenses by points per game and yards per game right now. And the Patriots spend the most on tight ends. The Cardinals are 21st. 
The Cardinals are one of the biggest spenders in interior offensive line, and the Patriots are 28th and spending 21st in drafting. So there really aren't a lot of trends, which is interesting in and of itself. I think you've got to have a good quarterback, and usually that, that involves money, but there seems to be more than one way to skin a cat. You've got you know, productive teams like the Bengals. You've got uh, running back investment as part of their game. You've got other teams that are investing a lot in wide receivers. There's, it's all over the place. And, I mean, the reality is you, you can't spend everywhere, too. Very good. Well, Dave, appreciate you coming on, and certainly uh, all your insight on this I think has been very informative for at least myself and Mark and hopefully most of our listeners. And uh, we'll have you back on in a couple weeks, but until then, enjoy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you soon. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Happy Take Thanksgiving. Care, Dave. Dave Archibald from Inside the Pylon, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Dave Archin. And, Mark, I do think it's interesting that we always talk about how the NFL may be a copycat league in terms of scheme and what people are doing on the field. But as David showed, it's it's a little different in terms of how teams are managing their cap and their draft. Yeah, and I think that's kind of been the most interesting thing that's come out of his excellent series is that, you know, we like you said, teams look at X's and O's and think, oh, you know, you know we got to get big lanky tall cornerbacks like Richard Sherman and run that Seattle aggressive cover three look or we got to get tight ends like the Patriots do and use them like Rob Gronkowski so they copy each other on the field but then when they get into the front office mode and they're looking at roster construction they do things in wildly different ways so you would think that if teams are going to kind of scheme and try to do the similar things on the field that they would have to use same tactics in the front office but it doesn't play out that way it does not so we'll keep an eye on that Dave is going to be moving into uh or onto the defensive side of the ball coming up in the second half of the season so that is something to look out for as well but we're now going to move into our one and only Harris Stamper all go offensive play of the week and Mark what are we focusing on today here well in this week's version of the Harry Stamper offensive play of the week brought to you by Stamper Oil where 800 feet is not just a number it's a way of my way of life uh, we're looking back at that Cincinnati uh, Arizona game uh, in the opening segment we were kind of recapping this game I mentioned that uh, the Bengals were playing a lot of cover two and you know when that game was 14-7 early in the third quarter uh, Chris Collinsworth as Arizona Cardinals will walk into the line of scrimmage for this play. Actually came out and said, you know, Arizona needs somebody to come out and make a play. Well, they yep. got one on this one. Uh, they ran a, a simple fake stretch run to the left with Carson Palmer booting back to the right, and it's just a two-receiver route. He's got Larry Fitzgerald on the right. He's part of a, a trips. They had two tight ends and then Fitzgerald kind of as a flanker out to the sideline. He runs a simple wheel route, and J.J. Nelson, the rookie wide receiver, runs a deep post pattern from the backside. As we mentioned, the Bengals were in cover two. George Ioka, he's the safety to the side of Fitzgerald. He's been thinking, you know, Larry Fitzgerald, 32-year-old veteran, having a great season, putting up some big numbers already. He had been targeted early in that game. He just stares at Fitzgerald the entire time. On the backside, you've got Nelson, speedy guy, running that post route. Cornerback passes him off to the safety. The safety sees him coming across the field and thinks, oh, I've got help to the outside. Yep. I can kind of let him go. I know George is going to be there, right? Nope. Nope. 
I okay, literally, there, there's an uncle up on uh, inside the pylon right now. You, there's a still where you can see Ioka's staring right at Fitzgerald as JJ Nelson is running free like 20 yards behind him. Palmer on corks a beautiful throw. It's one of the best throws of just in terms of the pure mechanics and everything. It seemed like it was just a perfect throw. Yeah, it was a great throw, and you know, carried a lot of distance. You know, drops it in perfectly, and. Like Chris Collinsworth was asking for, they get somebody to step up, and it's the rookie wide receiver. And it's just an example of you see, you know, we talked about it earlier in the show, you know, making adjustments, seeing what you can get, seeing what works and what doesn't. You know, Arians has seen now two plays against cover two that haven't worked, but you dial something up that has a chance to work against cover two. You, you know, exploit the Basically, he kind of exploits the season that Fitzgerald is having because, you know, Ioka is staring him down and expecting, you know, a throw on the wheel route, thinking, oh, that's where Palmer wants to go with the ball, hits the backside post for the touchdown. And I find that I find that so interesting because I think a lot of times people want to take football and simply use it in a similar fashion to baseball. They just want to reduce it to statistics where it's, okay, player X had these stats in this many throws. Here's what he can do if he gets twice as many twice as many targets. But in this case, we see just by having a certain player running a certain route in front of you know a defender, it completely changes how that defense reacts and opens up new things. And that's something, it's, it's very different. You can't just look at the numbers with football. They can tell you a lot, but they can't tell you the why. And I think that's something that's missed if people are just looking at statistics. Yeah, and, you know, again, we're not talking about robots here. We're talking about human beings. And anytime you kind of, you know, look at football, it's an emotional game where at its core, there are people that are trying to impose their will on the human being across from them, whether you're a lineman or a wide receiver trying to break press coverage. So, you know, when you're looking at and evaluating players or schemes or plays, you have to put the context of what's gone on on the global scenario, on the global level, and then apply that to the plane here we have a safety that's he's he's occupied he's thinking oh that there's Larry Fitzgerald you know Palmer's been going to him all year long he's trying to get the ball to him they need a big play I I, I gotta see oh he's running a wheel route oh there's a vertical release I gotta get to the yep. sideline and help out and he ignores what's happening behind him which is his responsibility yeah and, and he'd been going to Fitzgerald even all day Fitzgerald had 13 of the 31 yep. targets from Palmer so almost 15 percent there and that's the type of thing when we talk about scheme and how people attack defenses. It's not just the plays that are called. It's also the sequence that those plays are called in. And that's something that is pretty critical. So we are now joined by our second guest of the day. And it is Dan Syed. You can follow him on Twitter, at Syed Schemes. And Dan, appreciate having you on. I know that you recently uh, began work as a lawyer. And I'm happy to see that you've made it out the other side to this point. <laughs> yeah, I'm still doing all right. Still have time to watch football and enjoy uh, the game I love. Thanks for having me on, and happy Thanksgiving, guys. Absolutely. A, a very happy Thanksgiving to you as well. And I know in particular you were looking at the New England-Buffalo Monday night game, and I, I guess some of the things that I want to talk about there, because we saw some issues on both sides of the ball for – uh, really on, on offense, I think. It was a game that really struggled to get a good offensive rhythm. So let's talk first about with the Patriots on defense. And talk to me a little bit about how the front seven of the Patriots was able to cause some problems for the Bills. So I think the Patriots' front seven is, is really one of the best in the game, and I think it's because they have tons of versatility. Uh, Jabal Sheard, 
It has been really, really outstanding for them. They have tons of depth at linebacker with Hightower, Freeney, uh, and Mayo. And Jamie Collins has been out for a couple of weeks and is still playing uh, very well. And then on the defensive on the defensive line, they just had so many pass rushers uh, and guys who uh, specialize in stuffing the run as well. And Hicks and Branch, they have tons of guys that do a lot of different things. And it lets Matt Patricia and Belichick really let those guys do what they do best instead of making one of the guys do uh, too much or go over their head. And then, uh, you know, in the secondary, that's a, that's a whole different game. But one thing I see the front seven do is consistently set the edge. And then I think that's really one of the reasons they succeeded. Uh, yesterday, the Bills came out in a lot of two running back sets and tried to run outside and didn't really didn't work for most of the game. Yeah, and in particular, I remember a couple plays – uh, one which it, this probably isn't quite the setting the edge play that you would you would think of. This was actually it was a play I believe was either in the second quarter or maybe the third where Gerard Mayo actually shot through the C gap and hadn't seen much from Gerard Mayo this year, but takes a good outside route to the running back to to really drop him for a loss. I think about three or four yards back in the backfield. Yeah, absolutely. Mayo uh, he he played in a limited role. I think less than twenty snaps yesterday, but. I think multiple times in the first series of the game and then uh, uh, the series you're referring to as well, shot inside uh, a blocker and, and made a big play. And then once the once the Patriots have gotten you to third and long, they've done a great job rushing the passer and it's been really difficult to move the ball on them. Dan, looking at you know that Bills offense and what they were able to do or how they struggled last night, um, what were your takeaways from Tyrod Taylor in the game that he had? I, I almost got the feeling that he was hurting or maybe the wind was affecting his default because it's almost like the bills took Sammy Watkins out of the game by themselves. Uh, every time they tried to throw deep, the ball was underthrown by a good three, three full yards. Um, and I thought Sammy Watkins had some chances for some plays, but Tyrod didn't really uh, put it out there for them. Uh, so I think they have to, they have to target Sammy Watkins more for sure. And I'm, and I'm not sure by the end of the game, I knew Tyrod was hurt with his uh, collarbone, but going in, I don't know how much uh, he was affected. Dan, let's let's talk a little bit about the Patriots offense because they they struggled to get moving as well, and obviously by the end of the game, pretty much missing top two wide receiver options in Danny Amendola and Julian Edelman. Deion Lewis out for the game. James White stepped in and ended up with a couple touchdowns, but overall, this was a game that I think on the, on the line and really in the trenches there, the New England offense – Struggled a little bit. Why was that? So I think uh, Rex Ryan definitely had a good game plan. He had extended time playing Thursday night uh, last week. So, but they didn't actually blitz uh, as much as I thought. Rewatching the game, they had a ton of where they would confuse Brady and have tons of guys on the line of scrimmage, but they only sent three or four most of the time. Uh, the problem was that the line and Brady, they didn't really communicate that well, and there were three rushers the entire game, and free rushers coming from the middle, and that that's going to cause any offense to struggle. Brady took more hits than I remember for uh, at least this year and maybe since the Kansas City game uh, last year. And when that happens, Brady leans on the guys he's most comfortable with. And this year that's been Edelman and Deion Lewis in, in the quick passing game. And with both of them out, it was, a, it was a really big struggle. He leaned on Amendola, and then Amendola went out. So whenever you have that many moving pieces, Brady loves to throw, anticipate his throws, and throw before throw guys open. So he needs to get comfortable with the guys that are going to be on the field in the next coming weeks. 
Dan, one thing that stood out to me and Gruden mentioned this as well was when Buffalo blitzed or brought pressure, they often played zone behind it. So it's not like a situation where as a quarterback, you know, you might have man coverage in the secondary and you get a chance that, you know, maybe one guy is a step on a receiver and you can make a throw. When you got pressure, but then guys have to take, you know, plays against zone, take time to develop. Is that something you saw as well? So I think I think Buffalo mixed their coverages up. Um, the Patriots were able to take advantage against man for sure on one of Amendola's big catches. There was an, there was an all out blitz and they got to, to Brady, but Amendola had just beat his man by ten yards and that set up the uh, go ahead touchdown to make it seventeen ten. At the same time, sometimes mixing up your coverages so much uh, works against you too because uh, at the end of the first half. The, they had been called. They called a running back wheel to James White, and a linebacker had peeled off on them, and it was covered. And then the next play, the Patriots ran the same concept with the running back, and this time it was more of a zone. And a secondary player had to account for James White. He was late. White made a move, and then got into the end zone. So, for most of the game, I would say it worked. But it, the Patriots were able to make one or two plays, and it ended up working out because uh, Buffalo couldn't score. Outstanding. Well, Dan, we got to let you go now, but certainly we appreciate you joining us. I know you've been very busy over the last couple months. And to you and your family, hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll get you on in a few weeks, okay? Thanks for having me on. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Thanks, Dan. Dan Syed, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Syed Schemes. And, Mark, we're going to look now at uh, another term from the Inside the Pylon Glossary. This is something that we've been covering uh, on the podcast for the last several weeks. We've been adding a term a day to our glossary. It is a fully annotated glossary that we are building with the help of the folks at the Scouting Academy, led by Dan Hatman. And we are now up over, I believe, 75 terms and continuing to build out the glossary every day. Uh, if you do have any suggestions for something you'd like to see covered, let us know. You can, you can tweet us, you can email us, whatever's easiest for you. But today... We're going to be covering a term that was used during yesterday's broadcast for uh, the Patriots and Buffalo Bills. And this was actually, there was a play where Tyrod Taylor had, I think, about five seconds in the pocket. And you could see him kind of going through all of his different receivers. And Mark, why don't you talk a little bit about what this term means? And that term is working progressions. Yeah, what we're talking about here is, you know, on any sort of passing play, um, a quarterback has a progression read system that he goes through. Um, you know, it varies from team to team, from offense from off to offense, different concepts. But, you know, the basic structure is, okay, you've got three different routes, five different routes, whatever the number is. How are you going to look at them and what order are you going to look at them? Are you going to look at a post route first and then come down to the dig route and then a check down? Are you going to look strong side or weak side or left to right? Um, so what it basically refers to is the order in which a quarterback will look at as receivers. Is that something that's set by the play and, and really by the coach in terms of how you're supposed to, or is that something that a quarterback decides based on his own comfort level? No, this this is basically determined pre-snap based on the play that's called and the coverage that the quarterback sees. I mean, a, a simple example, and it's small sample size, but from the system that I ran in college, most of our progression reads were based on the strength of the offensive formation. So, for example, a play that we ran all the time was X585. We've got, you know, the X receiver, the single receiver split to the left, and he runs a deep comeback. You've got the tight end, runs a post route. And then the flanker, the Z receiver on the right, runs another five route, that deep comeback route. So when you get up to the line of scrimmage, you identify the coverage in the secondary. And if we saw cover two 
you know, two high safeties. We read that to the strong side, and our read progression was what we call the quick look to the, the eight route, the tight end on the post route. If we can get them between the two deep safeties, we throw it. If we can't, then we come to that outside Z route, the outside five route by the Z receiver, that deep comeback route. Throw that, and if somehow the cornerback plays under that, then we go to the check down on that side. How much of a difference is there from, I guess, high school to college to the NFL in terms of how many different reads you're able to make? I mean, it would seem to me in college you may be able to get through you know, three, four receivers in a play, whereas the NFL, you may only have time to get through a couple options, and so you have to make sure that you're reading the defense properly. Right, and again, it, it wildly varies from team to team. I mean, this was, you know, I'm talking about a system that I ran, which is Division Three kind of system. Yep. Um, some colleges, if you look through playbooks, you know, that you can find online, there are teams that run, you know, full field reads for their college quarterbacks where you're going basically left to right or right to left, depending on the play structure. So there are some colleges out there, you know, Spurrier's system was one that, you know, if you look through his playbooks back when he was at the University of Florida, which are amazing to read, you can learn a ton from them. It was full five receiver progression reads from left to right or right to left on a given play. So it really depends on the coach, the scheme, and the offense that he has put together. Now, the first term that we covered on the podcast for the glossary was bird dogging, which is when you're staring down a receiver and essentially telling the defense exactly where you're going to be throwing. So is, I guess, kind of the opposite of that. When you're looking off a safety, for example, is that almost you're almost telling the safety a false read that you're making in order to get him out of position, correct? Right. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. And if you think about a play that we talked about earlier this season was, you know, the vertical route concept, you know, the Bengals hit a big play against a single high safety and you've got those two inside vertical routes from two slot receivers. That's a perfect example of what a quarterback does to look off a safety because that's what you're supposed to do. Safety is trying to split the difference, stay between those two vertical routes and try to read the quarterback's eyes and jump up the right route at the right time. So you've got to stare him down influence them with your eyes to one vertical route and then come back and throw the other one good stuff good stuff is there anything else that uh you think is really critical to know when we're talking about this term i I mean you know in terms of kind of a quarterback or player evaluation standpoint it's tough when you look at say a college quarterback or even try to see how a pro player is doing we don't know their progression reads you know, yep. we don't know, you know, okay, this is what they're supposed to look at in this order, one, two, three. We don't know for sure. We can guess based on coverage, based on our knowledge of playbooks and play schemes and things like that. But, you know, it's tough. And for a quarterback, you've got to – this happens within three seconds when you've got anywhere from three to seven guys that are bearing down on you to try to tear your head off. So it's a very, very tough thing to do, which is why, you know, it's easy to crush a quarterback when he makes a bad decision or you see somebody running wide open and you think, why didn't he throw the ball? Well – might not have been in his progression read, yep. or he was already on to the second or the third receiver. So it's a very tough thing to do. So to everybody out there, just, you know, I'm a quarterback guy at heart. Be a little easier on these guys. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Always. See, I say that with kickers, and no one listens to me. Uh, I know, but I listen to you. That's got to count for something. Yeah, I, I got you at least. At least we can go through go. this together. So let's talk about going through Thanksgiving together. Huh? Oh, progression reads on Thanksgiving Day. Progression huh? reads. It's look. Do I do? Do you go turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes? Do you go mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, rolls? How do you go about it? What's What's your preferred method when you're sitting down at the table? My preferred method. I, I'm I'm big on the turkey. How do you and fill I, the plate? I, do you do you? Are you one of the guys that packs the plate? Ah, uh, no, no, you don't. You don't pack the plate. I mean, and, and the reason is you need you need a little room for everything. Okay, you got you get a little turkey. 
got some mashed potatoes, some little bit of sweet potatoes, and some stuff in a little yep. cranberry sauce. But you don't want it. My first tip, I guess, kind of builds into this, and that is, folks, this holiday weekend, it is a marathon. It is not a sprint, okay? Pace yourself. I respectfully disagree. Really? I don't believe it's a marathon or a sprint. What, do you, what is it, then? It is a marathon sprint. A marathon sprint. You have to be going all out the entire time. It's You, you look at marathon runners. Everyone always thinks they're just jogging because it looks so easy when you see it on TV. They're running 4-minute and 30-second miles. That is not a jog. You are hauling. So you you got to be doing the same thing at Thanksgiving. That is, It is critical to be attacking that plate at all times. Well, this is true, but I mean, that's that's all well and good for the you know the hour or so that you're at you know the Thanksgiving meal table, okay? But bigger picture here, and let's remember that for a lot of people out there, I'm you know I'm an older guy, so this doesn't really you know speak to me, but it speaks to guys you know in your generation, you younger guys out there. It's Thanksgiving weekend for most people starts Wednesday night. I mean, they True. say that you know, yep. Wednesday night is like the biggest bar night, club night of the year, it's the drunkest which, night of the year. I know. So start pacing yourselves then, people, okay? See, just, I, just listen to Papa Schofield on this one. Just start pacing yourselves early because there is nothing worse in my mind than trying to pull off that marathon sprint that Chuck's talking about at the Thanksgiving meal when you're still hurting from the night before. I look okay? at it. I look at it. There's a reason that they call it stuffing and not empty. It's, it's that simple to me. It's that simple to me. Let me give – I got a couple tips also. Um, and these are from personal experience. The first, if you are cooking a turkey at home, make sure you turn on the oven. Okay. That's a big one. We had a real problem with this. I was about seven at the time, and we had a bunch of people over for Thanksgiving, getting ready for dinner. You know, you do the early dinner somewhere around 4 or 4.30, and somewhere around 3.15 or so, you know, we're walking past the kitchen, and, and my dad and I say, you know, let's, let's go take a look at the turkey. We open the oven up. Oven wasn't on. Oven wasn't on. So dinner ended up being, we ended up, you know, you have everything else. So you kind of go through all the sides first just because everyone was hungry, obviously. And then I think we had the turkey somewhere around like 730 or 8 at night, actually. So that that's a late start time, though. The uh, the Meal. 730 or 8? No, the, the 4 o'clock. Is it? Yeah. What time do you guys do it usually? Well, here's another little tip that, you know, again, guy my generation, I've got two kids. You know, I've, I'm lucky. My parents are in the na- in the area. My in-laws are in the area. We go out to eat. Oh, that's smart. That's smart. Yeah. We have an 11 a.m. reservation. Really? We have a lunchtime big meal. Oh, okay. We head we head to somebody's house this year. It's my in-laws. They're my my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, Bob and Bonnie. Love them to death. Love them dearly. They have everybody over. The biggest standing family. We all eat out. Go back to the house. Game's on. Start watching football. Yep. And we can just graze. They'll put out a great big spread. We'll all bring desserts and stuff to snack on. And then it's, you know, three, four, five hours of watching football with the family. That's how we roll. Oh, that's not bad. I like it's, the, it's a nice little setup. I it's like the nice Schofields. Yeah. You got yeah. Uh, extra space at the table? I may hop in. Uh, anytime, man. You know, mi casa es su casa. Love it. Love it. I got uh, I got one more, actually. I got Ooh, one I, more. I've got a couple, too. But go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, this one is either if you have children send one of them to medical school, or marry a doctor. Because if there's one constant on Thanksgiving, either someone's getting sick or someone's taking an elbow in a flag football game, there is always someone injured. And you can save yourself a lot of money in medical bills by having a doctor in-house. 
That's a very good point. It, it's a very underrated point that you're making there, but it's a, it's a smart one. People should definitely, you know, if you've got a you know a cousin or somebody in your family that's single right now, start thinking. You know, think. Hmm, is there a doctor I know, or you know, registered nurse, somebody that you know that you could set them up with. You'll be safer next Thanksgiving. Yeah, just- I'm gonna, here's a tip. Here's a tip. Here's a tip. If you're gonna deep fry the turkey, people, okay. And let me just say at the outset that inside the pylon, it's staff, editors, and any wholly or, you know, partially owned subsidiaries of InsideThePylon.com are not in any way responsible for what we're, the advice we're about to give. It is just advice. You do this at your own risk. But if you are going to deep fry your turkey. You're still a lawyer, aren't you? <laughs> I am still a lawyer. I am still a lawyer. I am still a lawyer. But folks, if you are going to deep fry the turkey, make sure it's thawed. Unless you want to burn down your house, it happens to over four thousand people a year. Really, that Unless many? You, yeah, I looked. At, I literally looked it up before we started wow. recording. Four thousand people a year burn down their house deep frying a turkey. Shocking. Which is why go out to eat? But if you're gonna do it, make sure the turkey is thawed before you drop it into that you know huge you know vat of boiling hot searing oil. Didn't know that, but you learn something new just learn about every, every day. day. That's that's my uh that's my knowledge infusion for the day. Let's uh let's get back to football because we do have a weekend coming up with uh some big games, one of which is going to be on Thanksgiving and that's Carolina Dallas. Yep. This Looking is- forward to this one. I mean, you know, I was reading a little bit this morning. I mean, that matchup I think between uh Norman the cornerback for Carolina and Des Bryant, that's going to be fun to watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, this is, and especially I look at this now that you have Tony Romo back there, and I think a lot of people had forgotten that this Cowboys team, with a capable quarterback and with Des Bryant back in the lineup, look, they're not a great team by any means, but especially at home on Thanksgiving, Cowboys are always tough to play there. So I I look at this as a good test for the Carolina Panthers to go into a hostile environment on the road against a team that has, you know, potentially is coming off, has a little bit of a buzz around it now, you know, in that locker room, starting to get things moving. And I look at it as a good test for Cam Newton and the Panthers, who are 10-0 to this point. Yeah, I think it's a really good test for them. I mean, you've got the short week now with, you know, the holiday and everything that goes on, you know, just in your home life where you've got to get ready. And, you know, now you've got to travel and get out to Dallas for a Thursday game. It'll be a good test and another good barometer of, you know, what Carolina's done this year and how Cam Newton's been able to lead that offense, even with, you know, the sort of lack of weapons uh, that they can put on the field. So, you know, that's a game that I'm looking forward to. You know, another game that kind of stands out, Obviously, is that, you know, Patriots-Denver game. Yeah, and this one was one that I think at the beginning of the season, everyone said, okay, it's Brady-Manning, we're going to have that high-scoring affair, we're going to, you know, pretty much, you know, fire the scoreboard up, get extra power to the stadium because we're going to need it. And you sit here now and you say, okay, it's going to be 20-17. to 17. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to be the high-scoring affair that we thought it was just because, A, you've got two defenses that are playing pretty well, and B, both offenses have issues, obviously, with Denver being the quarterback, with New England a beat-up receiving core. Yeah, and I actually saw something this morning that you've got, I think, the top two defenses in terms of, you know, holding teams to yardage. I mean, they've allowed the fewest yards, both Denver and New England. Somebody can fact-check me on that, but I think it's true um, So to this date, to this point in the season. So, you know, like you said, you see this game come out on the schedule and it's released, you think, oh, man, that's going to be high-scoring affair, but... Like you said, 2017, that kind of seems where this one's headed. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time for the day. And, Mark, hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving. 
You too, Chuck. Have a great Thanksgiving holiday, my friend. And to all of our listeners, too, hope you and your loved ones are happy at home, safe, warm, and and well-fed. We are out for the week. We will be back next week. Until then, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and as always, make sure you stop by InsideThePylon.com. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.